I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Will Republicans retake the Senate in 2014? What will happen in the House? What's the latest in 2016 presidential politics? People who want to stay ahead of the curve in politics turn to our good friends at the Cook Political Report for answers. For more than 30 years, Charlie Cook and his team have nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News' Bob Schieffer calls the report, quote, the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver says few have, quote, a longer track record of success. If you make it your business to know politics, you need to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Head over to cookpolitical.com slash political wire. That's cookpolitical.com slash political wire to sign up today. And now to our conversation. As we make our way towards the first Tuesday in November, a highly watched, always debated component of American politics is ready to take its place center stage. Statistical models. These models, which connect and weight a range of ever-changing data, have replaced the simple who will win by how many points projections. And with Senate control both still undetermined and central to our political future, understanding these models is key. And of course, none of these models is better known or more anticipated than Nate Silver's. Nate Silver almost single-handedly brought the art and science of political statistical modeling to our cultural mainstream. He is founder and editor-in-chief of 538. Nate, let's go straight to your latest model and latest results. Who's going to take Senate control? Um, we don't know. Um, <laughs> we look at this in terms of probabilities, and, yes. and right now um, it's 53% chance for Republicans and 47 for Democrats, according to, to our model. We're picky about how we use the term toss-up, but, um, but as of when we ran it on, on, uh, on Tuesday night, it was certainly getting there. Now that doesn't account for a couple of good polls for Republicans like in Iowa that came out. Um, just this afternoon we're recording this. So, um, so that could change, but you know, basically it's been, uh, drifting at various times between a toss up and a slight advantage to, uh, to Republicans. Yeah. I, I knew was, you know, in asking you the question, it's, it's much safer to ask you the question, who's more likely to win the Senate than who is going to win the Senate, isn't it? Yeah. And this is, you know, one of our big things is we feel like it's our responsibility in a year when there's a lot of uncertainty to, to, kind of make that the story. And it's not just the overall Senate picture. Um, it's also, you know, there may be eight or 10 races that could go either way. There are complicated contingencies in terms of who an independent Greg Orman might caucus with in Kansas. Uh, there's a potential for the likelihood rather of a runoff in Louisiana, the potential for one in Georgia. The fact that, um, Alaska is one of the more important states, uh, and, that takes forever to count the vote there. Um, you know, the fact that we see really different results from different pollsters in, in certain states. In Iowa, for instance, there had been a poll last week that had the Democrat Braley up six. Today we got another poll from Quinnipiac that had uh, Ernst, the Republican, I think also up six or something. Um, it's a year with really messy and, and noisy data, and both in terms of how we communicate about our model, kind of in words to the public, but also with the modeling choices themselves. When you have disagreement among the polls, that means your confidence ought to be lower. That's an empirical finding. Um, when you have disagreement um, between what the state polls are saying and what the national polls are saying, where the GOP is now well ahead on the generic ballot, which usually moves in line with the Senate polls in the long run, maybe it's not 
temporarily this year, but that's that's a reason for forecasters to be concerned. So um, so it's a challenging race to forecast, and I think the best one can do is to be responsible um, in talking about the uncertainty in the races. And of course, if anyone wants a full explanation of you know these things that you're talking about about you know how the model works and and the you know what to what to watch as you're looking not only at your model but at models in general, um, I know you just wrote uh, something you know in in the neighborhood of ten thousand words um, about about your model, and that's the type of transparency. Um, you know that, that's that's required, and and I think it goes. Uh, it's it's really central to your philosophy about all this kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, we because um, every year we put out the model, and that's exciting, right? And it gets a lot of attention, and it's it's fun. I mean, it is fun when we get to run Harry and I get to run the forecasts every day, um, but it's also really exhausting. And so for for the last couple of cycles, we're like, oh, we're gonna have this really detailed methodology piece, and we didn't, right? And so we do want something that you know you could reverse engineer the five thirty eight model pretty easily. We don't publish the code, but, you know, we tell you kind of literally every step we're taking and and how we do it. Um, and, you know, we have an audience that is concerned about about the details, and I'm kind of a details matter type of guy, um, where, you know, especially in a race this close, um, you know, little improvements that you can make here and there in terms of, of how you weight different polls, adjusting for registered versus likely voters. Like none of this stuff matters all that much, but you know, people unfortunately are are concerned about the difference between a 50% chance and a 60% chance, and, and that's where sometimes the, the assumptions you make and the choices you make um, can matter. Yeah, it, it's really true. I mean, you have, to, you have to cater to a wide range. I mean, you're going to have some folks who look at your stuff and from a purely statistical, let's look at, you know, let's think about this model and let's think about, you know, the regret and, and really, you know, the nuts and bolts and that's, and let's find all the problems with it. And then you're going to have, have a, you know, on the other side of the spectrum, the, you know, the political judge and maybe even just the political kind of, you know, interested every two to four years. And it's like, okay, Nate, you know, can you just give me the headline, please? You know, I trust you to yeah. make the sausage, <laughs> but, you know, we just, just tell me, you know, tell me what it tastes like. So we think we have about <clears throat> four different audiences for, for this stuff, right? One is the people who we love, um, who just kind of really like the method and the approach behind it. And they might be people who are who are not particularly elections junkies, but like the philosophy behind how we're doing the model and also read our sports content and so forth. Um, that's one. Number two is you get an audience of whoever um, you have ahead in the forecast. Their, their partisans tend to suddenly find virtue in your forecast and failure with the other forecasts and vice versa. And number three, some people chase down who got the last election more right. And we know that you know, we make these forecasts probabilistically, so we're going to have an election sooner rather than later. And this one being so close, more likely than it was in 2012, um, where we get it wrong, and people who are kind of chasing down small sample sizes will care about that. But yeah, you also have people who just, you know, kind of want the gist of, hey, what's happening in the election, and they get their fix from seeing a number every day. Um, and, you know, I appreciate that audience, too. We try and, and be careful about writing updates about the forecast every day that, that don't just say, oh, now it's 54% instead of 56%. We try and explain what's going on. One reason to look at not just the polls, but other factors, whether you use them in your model or not, is to put some context around them so you can understand why, for example, why have Democrats been moving up in, in Colorado, um, for instance, in North Carolina, where they've gotten a series of pretty good polls recently? Well, one reason is that they have a big 
money advantage, and we've seen that translate into very heavy ad spending in those states. So, so you know, knowing the context and realizing that the model is just a tool, it's a really useful tool, it's an important tool, um, but it's just a tool, a lens for understanding the election. Um, and so we try and actually talk about the election usually and not the model itself, notwithstanding today when we have a 10,000 word, <laughs> you know, theory of forecasting kind of piece. We, we, you know, don't do too much of that, I hope. Okay. So let's talk a little bit uh, about the elections and, and uh, move away from the model itself. First, and I want to get into the states and you hit just about every state that I, I want to ask you about. Uh, I don't know that we'll be able to get to all of them, but, but on the broad picture, where, where are we open to this conversation? You know, who, who's, who's more likely to win? And, and I think that your latest result is just over 53% probability um, that it's Republicans. I, I think when you when you launched this um, this vintage of your model uh, a couple of weeks ago for this the Senate election, um, you were at uh, it, it was showing about a sixty four percent probability for Republicans. So first of all, you'll, you'll correct me if I'm wrong on that timing. But secondly, what's and you talked about some of these things, but what's happened or what's happening? And do you do you as you interpret that shift? Is that momentum? Is that better data? Is, is that something, you know, do, do, do you want to be on a Democratic side of that? Or is this just things evening out? Or that's just part of what you're trying to figure out as, as much as the rest of us are? So to, to get a little geeky about it, a, a good model should efficiently incorporate all the data that it has as of that given day. So there shouldn't be momentum in it, really, right? The fact that Democrats gained the last Three days, I think we ran it, shouldn't have any effect on how that happens today. I think, for example, because you have like some bad polls from in Iowa, then probably the GOP will pick up a point or two. So I'm not a huge believer in, <clears throat> in momentum. Um, if anything, the reverse is true, where polls tend to revert to the mean. Um, you know, I think sometimes the news media um, will take the most recent poll in the race and say, hey, this is. Um, the latest and greatest data, the latest snapshot of how things are looking. You actually want to look at a wider range of polls um, going back several weeks um, instead of focusing on just one. Polling data is really noisy. We see, as in Iowa this year, different approaches are producing very different results. Um, so looking at a, a wider average instead of just the most recent poll is, is will lead to less movement overall. You know, with that said, um, in Iowa, excuse me, not Iowa, but in North Carolina and Colorado, you have had a shift in the consensus of the polls. It's not just been one outlier poll. Um, it's been, you know, four or five polls in each state to show Democrats doing better. You know, we hear rumors there might be polls in Colorado coming out soon that will uh, not show that. Um, but it's been a reasonably clear trend based on on the past two weeks of data, at least. And I know that part of what goes in, I, I believe, you know, if I understand, uh, you know, the piece that you wrote and other things that I've read of yours correctly, it's it's not just that polls maybe coming out one direction or another, but kind of which polls are they? How do they, you know, how do they get their voters? Are they the robocalling? And the, do they call cell phones? Do they call? And, and I know there's a lot of a lot that you factor in. It's not just you know whether there's a new poll coming out, um, but but kind of what's what's behind the poll. In in sticking with the the states, and you just mentioned Iowa. I'm wondering if that's going to be your answer here. Um, is there a pure toss-up state, you know, one state that your model says at this point is just a coin flip and, and maybe it's been consistently there in the coin flip zone? Yeah, I mean, Iowa's been 
pretty much a coin flip since we launched the model. Kansas has been pretty much a coin flip since the Democrat um, dropped out of the race, which oddly enough actually helps Democrats. Um, you know, so um, those are the two. You know, Alaska is maybe the next closest. We have that at about 60-40. Um, but, you know, it's been a funny year. There were times earlier in North Carolina, for instance, when Kay Hagan appeared to have a lead. Then it kind of reverted to 50-50, and now she's pulled up again, right? Um, yep. uh, in Iowa, there were, you know, you could kind of get the smidgen of a Braley lead for a while, and now it seems to have reversed if anything, Arkansas has drifted between a Republican lean and a toss-up and now back to a Republican lean. So, um, so you know, we saw kind of incredibly steady movement in the polls in 2012. Where it was kind of like the same forecast every day. Um, then you had, you know, a couple point peaks of movement around the GB convention, the Democratic convention in the first debate. Um, but that's not been true. <laughs> it's not been true this year. Um, one time, one thing to get back to the advertising and money question is yep. sometimes when you see um, a bounce in a particular state of three or four points that you're having trouble explaining, it can't just be that one candidate went up with a big ad buy, saturates the airwaves. Advertising does affect the vote, but it has a really temporary, short-lived effect. Um, so I think a central question this year is, can Democrats sustain this financial advantage that they've had? If they can, then... Uh, then they can win some of these purple state races in what otherwise looks like a bad electoral environment for them. And on the money front, if, if I think you wrote this uh, when this vintage came out, when this uh, you know this model first came out, that that Democrats were outraising Republicans in non-PAC money. You really differentiate. Uh, in, in, it's not just how much. And, and I know you were talking about the spend on the other side there and spending money on on advertising that sort of thing. But in terms of the fundraising, you kind of differentiate on wh- where does that money come from? How are they getting how are they getting their funds? Is is that right? Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, and and the reason why we look at um, look at individual contributions is because, um, you know, fundraising tells you something about how much money a campaign has to spend, but it's also an indicator, it's hard data of how many people the campaign is is connecting with. It's very helpful, for example, in the primaries, if you go way back to 2008, um, where you had Super Tuesday, a lot of those states weren't polled or were barely polled, but you could look at where Clinton had raised more and Obama had raised more, and that was a pretty reliable indicator. It's one of the better um, resources out there, and that does tell a good story for for Democrats in the year where most other indicators here in the GOP, um, the individual contributions favor Democrats in almost all the swing Senate races. And by the way, in contrast uh, to 2010, the PAC money is pretty even. In fact, by some estimates, um, actually net Democratic in Senate campaigns. So, you know, Charlie Cook wrote about this the other day, but one big question is kind of what's happened to to groups like Crossroads, um, they haven't spent very much money at all on the Senate. Uh, and I'm not saying money is everything, but um, that could potentially affect uh, a race or two. And conversely, Democrats, you know, all the spam you get if you're an election uh, journalist <laughs> from the campaigns each week, you know, maybe they've learned something about how to frighten people into into pitching in $5 here, $10 there, because they have brought in a lot of money for their campaigns. Uh, on some of the uh, states, the uh, one that we discussed or that you mentioned just a moment ago, Kansas, um, you know, that's where, as you as you said, Democrat Chad uh, Taylor dropped his challenge to uh, Senator Pat Roberts, really allowing and enabling independent Greg Orman um, to have a better shot. Um, h- how are you 
looking at that, how are you looking at Orman's chance to win? How much of a factor? It's, I mean, it's obviously a huge factor that Taylor um, pulled out. There's a bit of a challenge right now in court about uh, whether he'll actually be allowed to. And, and talk to me about the the caucus effect. And, and you kind of referenced it earlier in this conversation. Um, you know, is there a guarantee that Orman would caucus with Democrats? And how does the sense of where he might caucus, how does that play into probabilities around this race? Is there a connection there? Yeah, and this is one of those things where, you know, we like to make as few assumptions as possible, but unfortunately, um, you have to make some assumptions with, with Mormon. Um, what he said is that if one party is clearly in the majority, he'll caucus with them. So if he's not the decisive vote, then we just um, add on one more Senate seat to the winner, basically. Um, but people are interested in what happens if it is 50-49 as it were, and if he caucuses them with Democrats, it's 50-50, and they get Biden as a tiebreaker. Um, you know, if you look at, there are different systems we look at that measure where candidates are on a left-center-right scale, and by those measures, Orman looks a lot like Angus King of Maine, um, who ran as an independent and caucused with the Democrats. Remember, the Democrat did drop out of the campaign uh, uh, to help his chances, Orman used to be a Democrat. He's been various things, but he ran in the primary in 2008 as a Democrat. So, you know, we think based on that ideology measure, he's more likely than not to caucus with the Democrats. But on the other hand, it is Kansas. Um, he might think about, well, is it easier for me to have to face a Republican primary in six years as a very moderate uh, Republican uh, or to have to face reelection as a Democrat? That might weigh on his mind a little bit. Um, the sense of momentum in the campaign. Remember, too, we're probably not going to know what's going to happen in, in Louisiana as of Election Day. So let's say Orman wins, um, but you still don't have a Louisiana result. Maybe you have a runoff in Georgia. Maybe there's a recount or two, say, in Alaska um, or Iowa because it's so close. It could get really messy. And, uh, you know, I hate to tell my people here at 538, but I'm like, you know, this is maybe not an election where you can plan a big Caribbean trip the weekend after the election. The drama is probably going to continue on um, at least to that Louisiana runoff in early December and maybe and maybe beyond that. Yeah, it wouldn't wouldn't that be incredible? I mean, you, you you'll let you'll let the folks go home though, right? I mean, they might not be able to travel, but you, you'll let them go home for a night or two, won't you? No, they will. And, and yeah, and the good thing now is I, I, we're happy to get all the attention for the election forecast. But politics is is just one of the things that we that we do. Yeah, um, no, so I'm... the sports people, though, this is also a busy time with the sports calendar. You know, the yeah. NBA season and the World Series start like a week before the election. So, yeah, it's going to be a lot of long hours. There's, a, lo there's a lot going on. You know, there's also the, the question of, you know, where, where can you really find the best burrito in this country? I mean, there's, there's a lot... <laughs> There's there's a lot going on there. Any of these races, and, and and kind of more a a personal level, and I don't know to what extent you can separate you know the personal from you know the statistical and and that part of what you do. But any of these races kind of particularly interesting to you, or you're waking up, you know, what's the, what's the one that that you look at first, maybe out of personal interest or or some some aspect of it that that really just uh, you know has you focusing on it. I mean the Kansas is probably the most interesting story. Um, you know, I always kind of joke like, well, you know, I would like to see independent candidates do better just in my own personal 
political view, but they're a pain in the butt to account for in <laughs> yeah. in the model. Whenever you have an Angus King or or a Norman, there's about 200 more lines of code you have to write to deal with them. But that's a fascinating story, given Kansas' very very consistent history of electing Republicans to the Senate. Um, Alaska is really interesting in the sense that it's its own kind of unique entity, and the polls are all over the place there. Um, that is one state where looking at Alaska's very red lean um, is why we see that tilting to Republicans instead of being a pure toss-up. But yeah. why um, is that? Why, but, why is Alaska so hard to poll? Um, good question. Uh, I think it may be because you have. I mean, there are probably a lot of things going on. Number one is that um, literally because of this is speculative, right? But because of literally. The fact that the daylight is strange there, people work different hours than they do in other parts in the country. This is also true of Nevada, where it's oriented around the gaming industry, and people have a lot of night shifts and stuff like that. So that can make people harder to reach. Um, you know, you have some people who are uh, who are way out in the boonies. It's a very big state. You have a Native American uh, or Alaskan Native, I should say, population um, that may be hard to reach. Um, you have a lot of transplants to Alaska, uh, people who did not grow up there, and they tend to be harder to reach. So, um, And you have a state that has an independent streak. A lot of registered independents there. It has a bit of a libertarian lean. So everything kind of conspires together to make it a strange uh, state to pull. And, and Nate, just to close out, somehow we've had a full discussion about uh, elections and probability, uh, and, and we haven't mentioned once President Obama. Um, new New York Times uh, CBS poll out, I'm sure you saw it, uh, and, and things seem to be going you know, slightly further south for him in terms of uh, approval, and, and they kind of broke it down in, in, in several areas from uh, you know, terrorism to economy and uh, uh, foreign policy and, and so on. Um, obviously, uh, you know, presidential popularity is a factor in the model, um, but, but you know, how big of a factor is, is the Obama aspect? Do you look at him and his um, approval? Do you look at simply kind of presidents? I know you've kind of differentiated in the popularity that, uh, you know, Clinton and Reagan had in, in years six versus uh, you know, W. Bush and, and Obama. But as is, is you look at Obama's uh, approvals, um, what is that making you think and, and how does that uh, affect your models? Um, so we don't actually use presidential approval in, in our model. Um, we just look at the, the generic ballot. It does count for the fact that historically um, midterms tend to be bad for the president's party. But, you know, frankly, if we did look at the fact that this president is now – presidents are often unpopular six years in, but even relative to that, Obama's a little bit below average. That would be another – reason for the GOP to be optimistic. I mean, it's strange. If you hadn't seen any state polls, and never mind fundamental, just look at national polls, look at Obama's approval rating, look at the generic ballot, which the New York Times uh, had the GOP plus seven. You know, if you had just seen those polls, you'd be like, boy, this is a wave election where Democrats are going to lose most of these purple state races, um, and maybe even lose a couple of blue state races. Maybe it's the kind of election where they can get close to Al Franken in Minnesota. That's not what you see in the state-by-state -state data. Um, you know, one hypothesis might be that the GOP is campaigned poorly. One might be that um, Democrats are staying afloat because of money and they have better candidates. And the other one might be that, well, sooner or later something's going to break, um, and this might revert back to the GOP at the end. And maybe polls like that Quinnipiac poll in Iowa that have uh, have barely down six points will turn out to be right. You know, one thing people don't realize is that is that most years. 
the polls are biased. Um, we just don't know in which direction <laughs> ahead of time. Um, in 2012, the polls was low on Democrats in almost every state. And because, like in the presidency, it didn't swing a lot of states, just meant Obama won by a more solid margin, say in Colorado and Iowa and states like that. People didn't worry about it. But the polls did not have a great year in, in 2012. And there have been many years in the past, 94, big uh, Democratic bias in the polls, GOP outperformed 98, big Republican bias, 2002, big Democratic bias. It kind of flips back and forth every year. And that's why we emphasize um, we can't rule out the possibility of, of a GOP wave. We still can't. You know, we can't rule out the possibility that Democrats will, will have a really great year, which in this context means probably they, they lose only three or four seats and win one or two GOP seats, but that would still leave them at 53 seats or so in the Senate or 52. And because 2016 is a very good map for them, now all of a sudden, just the opposite this year, all these Blue state Republicans are up for re-election. Democrats would have reason to feel pretty good about that outcome. So there's a lot that we don't know <laughs> yeah. um, about what's happening here. And, and, you know, sometimes you get toward the end of the campaign, you get more clarity from the data. You know, this doesn't seem so far to be one of those years. Um, the data t- tells the story that this is a really messy type of of campaign to try and forecast. Incredible how much uh, how much variability there still can be, even though we're only uh, about a month and a half away from the election. But um, that variability is among the reasons why folks need to uh, continue to go back to 538 and see, uh, you know, what the latest information, the latest uh, inputs to the model mean for their favorite Senate race and overall control of the Senate. Nate Silver is founder and editor-in-chief of 538. Uh, Nate, thank you so much for the time. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations.